0: Welcome back to Pathways to Resilience. Uh, thanks for listening. I am pleased today to welcome a uh, guest, Dr. Peter Goldblum, uh, who's a new friend to Pathways to Resilience. I'm excited about our conversation today. Peter is Professor Emeritus of Psychology, Founding Director of the Center of LGBTQ Evidence-Based Applied Research, Founding Director of the Sexual and Gender Identities Clinic and the LGBTQ area of emphasis at Palo University. He's a pioneer in the development of community-based mental health programs for LGBTQ clients with over 45 years experience serving this population in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's contributed to the professional literature related to gay men's health, culture, and suicide, end of life issues, HIV, and AIDS bereavement, including two highly acclaimed books, One is Strategies for Survival, a Gay Men's Health Manual for the Age of AIDS, and Working with AIDS Bereavement. Most recently, his research has focused on suicide and bullying, including serving as senior editor to the book, Youth Suicide and Bullying by Oxford Press University. And now that he is not teaching, his recent work, Peter is the behavioral health and public health consultant to Project Trust. We'll hear about that today under the leadership of Reverend Floyd Tompkins. And this is a community and academic partnership focused on the principles of trustworthiness and collaboration. And their latest article is using cross-cultural collaboration to establish a working coalition for an equitable COVID-19 vaccine program uh, that is part of the Journal of Humanistic Psychology in its February 2023 issue. And we'll make sure that that link gets Posted with this episode for download. Um, Dr. Goldblum's awards include the NCSPP Gay, Lesbian, and Bisexual Committee Award for his contribution to professional psychology, the APA Division 44 Distinguished Contributions to Education and Training Award, and the Larry Butler Faculty Award at Palo Alto University in recognition of outstanding national and international contributions to the field of psychology. There's so much more, but it was absolutely (laughs) worth writing um, and reading all of that, because what an accomplished career you have. Thanks for being with me today, Peter. Thanks for having me. So let's start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey towards focusing on LGBTQ mental health studies.
1: Okay. Well, I would like to start by talking a little bit very shortly about language, because Mm. Over the course of my career, there have been several changes in language, and I, in order to be true to the history, I'm going to use the terms that were in, in vogue when, when I, I was uh, there, and, and 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 so I may use the term gay or LGBT, and for, you know if it's really current, I may use
2: the term queer. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so I was born in Port Arthur, Texas,
1: a small refinery town in southeast Texas, um, and I was, I was born and raised during the period of Jim Crow, mm-hmm. uh, and Texas, southeast Texas, was definitely under the blanket of Jim Crow, uh, And from this, I learned the meaning of being an outsider very early. My father was a refugee from Nazi Germany uh, and came to this country in 1935 after completing his medical training in Germany uh, and felt a very deep gratitude to the United States for um, taking him in. And uh-huh. intervening in the war, my mother was a uh, a Radcliffe graduate, social worker. Had been my father's settlement worker in New York, uh-huh. and so we weren't your typical uh, Texans, nor were we even typical of the, uh, Americans. So uh-huh. uh, we were outside, however. Uh, I also have to be honest that um, I benefited and was protected by by my parents' privilege. Mm -hmm. So I did not get the brunt of uh, what Jim Crow could dish out, and and that was definitely uh, a benefit. In high school, I was one of the few liberals. And was always take the stance of of trying to articulate a position that was very much against the mainstream of my my high school i was there was zero absolutely no african americans in my high school oh. it, it, throughout my whole education and i remember one of my friends Uh, In one of our arguments about race and and equality and things like that said, Pete, you've never even met a Black person, except perhaps the people who work for your family. And he was right. Mm -hmm. And that became a challenge to me that I have accepted throughout my life is to Engage with as many different kind of communities as I can to learn from them, and this the the best example of this. And I I think I learned a lot was in my in, in my undergraduate. Um, I decided I would go up north. That's what we call anything about <laughs> Mason Dixon line, and. I would go to Wisconsin to be a, a camp counselor at a boys Scout camp because I knew that they that, you know, from the brochure that a lot of their campers were going to be black and their uh the counselors and I was very fortunate and let me just right now <laughs> say we no longer have the privilege of doing this this was a, this was a long time ago and you know the world has changed, and our response to um you know we we should know we should know a lot better than I knew at that time mm-hmm. but they were they were actually quite uh, the african American counselors, which was most of them were quite taken that I would come up to to understand this and they they and not always patiently but corrected all the bad mistakes I was making in language and so forth, they could see that my heart was in the right place. And I just mm. did not know um, what the hell I was doing. <laughs> um, and I think about these guys when we talk, and, and uh, I think a lot of what we'll talk about today is grace. Mm. And how, how How they... They gave me grace to make mistakes because they, they saw that my intention was good.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, that can be abused, you know. We can get real lazy and call for grace. But um,
2: so uh, after the after undergraduate school, um,
1: I was drafted, which at that time meant. A very good chance of going to go into Vietnam, mm-hmm. and uh, I tried th- everything that I could legally, except for mark the box that said I was a homosexual. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, it tot- would have been totally outside of my comfort zone. But I tried everything that I could, and I was drafted, and I was sent to radio school. And I was sitting in a line to go to Vietnam when someone came up and said, do you know how to type? And I said, well, I don't know. What do you have in mind? <laughs> and they said, if you can type, you can stay here another six months. I said I could type. And lo and behold, I ended up uh, working in the psychiatric unit at a hospital. Wow. I once asked my friend, Uh, Bishop Ernie Jackson about miracles and I said do you think that was a miracle And he looked at me directly he said yes and Mm. I do I do too and indeed yeah and 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 since then I have believed
2: in miracles I'm not sure exactly what how they come about but uh, uh So, in in the Army, I met a a lot of people from New York,
1: and I also had my first experience with a gay bar. Now, this Mm. was a little bar in Augusta, Georgia. You had to walk down an alleyway, knock on the door, and say, I know Phil the bartender. Mm. Uh, And then you could enter into perhaps the most diverse room of people. In all of Georgia. Um, and uh, from there, everyone said, you've got to go to New York. So I applied and was accepted at Teachers College of Columbia and went
2: off to New York. How are we doing time-wise? I don't know. You're to... good. Yes. No. You've. Yep. No worries. Um, Um at Teachers College, um, I met a, a young man
1: named Alan Young, who those of you who are uh, gay historian uh, will not remember that name. He happened to be a, a friend of the family, um, my family. And he introduced me to the early gay uh, organizations in New York, the Gay Liberation Front, gay activist actually he only was a gay liberation front guy and but uh and I met a man named David Canterbury. Uh actually I met him the first time I went to the
2: bats and I fell madly in love mm. feel in love. Uh and um I hoped that we would stay together for the rest of my life,
1: but he went off to be a a actor in Atlanta, and I went off to Europe to see how much change I could continue to make and to Mm -hmm. rebuilding of myself. Um, But then, after a while, I I, in in Europe, uh, I decided I needed to go home and and work and, and. and I did, and I got a job in Napa State Hospital and in, in college, where I trained psychiatric technicians. And David
2: came to live with me. Um, after three wonderful months together, David developed a severe depression, with hallucinations,
1: Hmm. uh, and decided he had to return to his family Hmm. in New York.
2: And about three weeks later, his father called me to say that he had committed suicide. Hmm. And fortunately, I had been working
1: with a psychologist in San Francisco named Don Clark. Who had just written a book called Loving Someone Gay. And I had enough time in that environment to begin to really believe that the problem that gay people, and
2: again, this was the term we used, mm-hmm. that the problem, the problems, the the the, the ideology or or, or the what
1: causes the problems for gay people, and, and under that rubric is also lesbians and bisexual,
2: is homophobia, not some kind
1: of internal weakness. I, you know, if I had not had that before David's death, I think I would have been I mean, I was devastated, but I would have gone back into deep, deep questioning. Mm-hmm. But because I had that, I had support for that in my life, I was able to transform the grief, which I felt and I've, I feel to this day. I was able to transfer, transform the grief into anger. Mm-hmm.
2: Age is probably closer and uh, uh, and so I began a lifetime inquiry into suicide and into grief um, somewhere around there, probably nineteen. 19- uh,
1: 74, I guess I was sitting at the uh White Horse Inn in Berkeley, a, a gay pub, and saw a brochure and it said, Are you lonely? <laughs> and I said, Hell yes, I, <laughs> I grabbed this brochure, very glossy brochure, and I looked at it and it said, we have tennis clubs, we have walking clubs. This is perfect. The name of the place was the Pacific Center for Human Development so uh, next day, I walked up to the to the director of the center and said, "I'm ready. I would like to enroll in one of your uh, uh, tenant. I'd like to re- enroll in your tennis club." Well, Said, we don't really have a tennis club, but if you want to start one, go ahead. (laughs) And everything I went through, everything on the brochure, and it was it was the same. But given that, within a week, I was totally surrounded
2: by people who were actively trying to support. um, Gay people, mm-hmm. again, what we call it. Uh, I have to be, I,
1: I, I will probably say that my my main contribution was having for my, I was in School of Public Health then, and my public health project was a dialogue between Berkeley Mental Health and the Pacific Center mm-hmm. the, to acquaint Berkeley Mental Health with, peop- with gay people in our lives. And it was uh, usually successful just in the conversation. And I believe that that relationship is still in
2: existence today. Uh, so I would call the next part of my life finding healing through love, work, service, and community mm-hmm. and um, throughout throughout my life throughout my professional life, I have always used those
1: experiences which I am mm-hmm. grappling with in my own person,
2: and I have surrounded myself with other people who we're developing either research or service, and in this
1: cozy support, I have found the support for my personal life.
2: Mm-hmm. In 1982, when AIDS
1: hit, I was actually working with a a, a group of uh, called the Resource Foundation. Patrick McGraw, Dr. Patrick McGraw, uh, working with gay men with chronic hepatitis. And given my public health background and my work with gay men, um, I was asked by the health department to join a small group of consultants to help develop the prevention programs for gay men Uh, and AIDS. Uh, Shortly after that, I became the deputy director of the founder and a founder and deputy
2: director of the UCSF AIDS Health Project. Um, One last, uh, two
1: last stories. During that time, I met the second love of my
2: life, Kenny Payne, Uh, I was at a fancy dinner party
1: uh, and there was a young man sitting across from me, beautiful blue eyes who was very animated and we started talking and
2: um, he asked me out. (laughs) Um, And uh, you know, at first I
1: was really kind of put off by his self-promotion and um, brilliant, uh, just work at finishing his PhD at Berkeley in anthropology, wonderful stories, very funny. But it wasn't until we went windsurfing and he had no idea how to do it. And the windsurfer knocked his glasses off, knocked oh. him in the water. He comes up sputtering. And we laughed, and he never had that drive to to, to uh, promote himself, and we
2: fell madly in love. Mm. Three months later, I was visiting my brother in Texas,
1: and I got a call from Kenny that he had just been diagnosed with age. Mm. And, um, with a severe case of pneumocystis pneumonia, which they predicted would only he would only last for uh, several weeks to a month, which was true then, but in fact we had three wonderful years, mm. together, which is weird to say, but it was one of the one of the most wonderful times of my life. Mm. And in there, I learned in a way that I never knew before that love was possible
2: for me. Mm. The two major homophobic lessons, beliefs that I struggled with were that
1: gay people could not find love and gay people were worthless and would not be able to provide, be, have a professional life. Mm-hmm. Would be so discriminated against. And with Kenny, I finally found that yes, it is possible mm-hmm. to have a love that, in this case, lasted forever. But forever was a way too short. Um.
2: Again, I. Threw myself into into my work. I ended up
1: going back to Palo Alto University, um,
2: and the um, the last story is uh, in nineteen
1: ninety seven, uh, starting this newfangled thing called AOL. <laughs> I bet Michael Carr who at the time was the uh, art manager at the quilt. And we have settled into uh, a really wonderful relationship 26 years later.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that closed closed the loop of being able to realize that the curse that I had felt about being gay, of being loveless and meaningless, had been broken. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, oh, so, so you, uh, uh Melissa, um, uh, Said that uh,
1: about my current work with, with Floyd Tompkins, we can talk about that. And, and to me, what this work is about is incorporating the lessons that I've learned over my life. Mm-hmm. And the lesson that we've learned, I think, in the Project Trust is how essential the trust relationship is, particularly between groups. They have different cultures, and to shift from the idea of a trust relationship to a trustworthy mm. relationship, and that this this trustworthiness is the central is the essential aspect of being able to work together, and it's
2: it's my my belief. And I, you know, I have to say that I'm supported in this by some wonderful people at Project Trust. Uh, that where we are failing each other is putting
1: each other into opposite camps, mm-hmm. and to believe that the other is the enemy including some language. And I, I always remember Susan Sontag's admonition about metaphors and that the metaphor of the war just puts the other in a position of enemy. Mm-hmm. It stops us from li- listening and understanding, and it puts us in a position of trying to defeat. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is
2: a position that has caused each of these large groups to back off and be very suspicious of each other. Mm -hmm. Because the trust is gone once you do that, yeah? The trust is gone.
1: The trust Mm -hmm. is gone. Mm -hmm. Um, you're, you're, You're trying to win.
2: You're not trying to fine Mm-hmm. wow
0: um incredibly inspired and sort of in awe listening to this this history your life history but that also brings us through sort of the gay rights history at the same time um, because you lived it i'm really um one of the, th- the themes i'm just seeing from the time you went and took the Boys club, boys and girls club or whatever that was brochure. One was that brochures were something that really caught your attention. But um, but that it was through relationship. All that you described all of them were were different forms of collaboration, right? From 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 going and meeting those counselors who were all people of color to saying humbly, I, I don't know, I just I want to learn. Yes. To your various loves of your life. Mm-hmm. and being open to those experiences and even open to sort of leaning in to your grief mm-hmm. um, when the first two passed away yes. and taking all of that. And then looking again, where can I go find collaborators? <laughs> I guess that's what's striking me is the number of collaborators you've had in your life, yes. not just professionally, but in your life, seeking love, in your life seeking a greater understanding of people who are different from you because you had this seemingly innate uh curiosity and uh i would say sort of reverence for diversity yes how and you know the the questions i had i almost have different ones because you answered some of them now but in our initial conversation you did talk about how you kind of had come to a place where you thought, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: man, we've come far. We've come really far. Mm -hmm. Uh, Homophobia is still there, but gosh, there is much more equity and inclusion for the gay queer community, for the BIMPOP community. Um, And that more recently you've realized that you grossly underestimated how much change had actually been made made, given where we are today, literally today. What is your perspective on how we get out? Because you said you you know rather than focusing on where we are and how terrible it is, yeah, you're really trying to focus on how do we get out of this place.
2: Or how are you doing that? Well, first of all, as I look at this and I and I look about how big a mistake I had felt and my, i think
1: we all had had estimate, misestimated the the level of hostility mm-hmm. toward people that believe like like i did I, I i always return to my father experience in germany that uh, you know he he would say how could a country that produced so many wonderful,
2: enlightened artists and thinkers create create this
1: huge amount of people who were who were uh
2: antagonistic and hostile and would go mm-hmm. along with terrible things and I remember. But remember, my my father's analysis was that the problem was initiated by the communist in the sense that
1: by pulling the country far to the left, it created what we see today, which is a schism of uh,
2: in which the right begins to coalesce and become empowered. Mm-hmm. So, I think for me, and of course <laughs> during the Vietnam War, and, and when I was, you know,
1: an undergraduate, I thought that was the stupidest mm-hmm. idea
2: that I ever heard of. And, mm-hmm. You know, but today. That I'm probably around his age. When he said that, uh, I have to say that that
1: first and foremost we have to work not to stigmatize the other, hmm. not not to see the other as my enemy,
2: um, and. Um, Gosh, that's hard sometimes. Huh? I said, gosh, that's hard sometimes. It it is. It's you know, and you, I I I think and I don't know,
1: I you know, I'm not sure that how well I do this. <laughs> but I think that as we get activated by such horrible things,
2: ours it's it's not What what and and Reverend Tompkins has given me this term, given me this term of grace, that is not the same as agreement. It's not the same as finding
1: some blending of ideas, some kumbaya
2: of ideas. It's a an under, a, a serious understanding that the others have grievance hmm. and to listen to that grievance seriously What is like to feel like
1: opportunities on the lower rung of the, of the professional ladder are being taken away from you Mm -hmm. When that's all the skills that you have. Mm -hmm. What it's like to feel like you are no longer valued. Now, you know, sometimes that we don't need to agree that that means that
2: you now need to give. Privilege. To the other, but you need to understand
1: and to see if there are some ways of. Helping
2: those folks find their goals Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm.
1: and to to work really hard to to not, you don't have to be friends, you don't have to go to the same clubs, but you do have to find places where you say,
2: this is our mutual goal. And this is the core of collaboration. This is our mutual goal. How do we how do we get there? Mm-hmm. What do you need? What do I need? What can
1: you live with or live without? What do I need? Um
2: and and I know at it, you know, at some level it it becomes kind of simplistic. And I know that, you know,
1: I, I we're, we're doing a series of dialogues. We're, we're setting up a series of dialogues now between uh, generations and the LGBT or the queer community now. And uh, my friend Lisa Round says, you know, there's a lot of people out there doing dialogues.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What there aren't a lot of people doing. Going beyond dialogues and collaborating,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so we need to find projects that we can both agree on and work together. And I think that's what has always reduced the the um, when when workplace began to become integrated. People began to see each other. I think differently.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I, I think we need to to find ways to, uh that we can have mutually beneficial projects, uh, not expect that uh, to uh, become, you know, necessary. Sometimes you may become best friends, but you don't have to become best friends, but you do have to learn to respect each other, listen to each other, Listen to what other people's needs are so they can win.
2: It's not mm-hmm.
1: a lose situation. Mm-hmm. It's really a, a win-win situation. Yeah. Um sounds you know, even as I as I hear myself saying it, I can think of many projects that have tried to, to do this and you know I but I I do 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 hear. So often, you know, when you're among like-minded people, the villainization of the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think we just have to, we we have to stop and say, you know,
2: what is the cost of that? Yeah, that's, yeah.
0: What has struck you, do you think, the most so
2: far in your study of cross-cultural collaboration? The last, the last paper that we we and you were kind enough to mention that we actually studied a cross cultural collaboration. The first thing is it's damn hard, you know. It sounds
1: easy, you know, and I've read many, many public health. Papers that have kind of listed, you know. First, you need to collaborate, but kind of just mm-hmm. list it. Like if I list it, then it
2: will be. Mm-hmm. Well, no. But actually, because perhaps sitting in the room the first
1: time could be easy, but going back into that room after you've had a, a disagreement, particularly a disagreement that hits close to home. Really hard. It's mm-hmm. very easy to bail out of it. In fact, it's it, it, this paper was interesting because the people who were in the collaboration were also the co-authors of the paper, mm-hmm. and that um, you know it. And and I must say that every every co-author read every version of the paper and gave. A lot of feedback. <laughs> I, I was the one knitting. I, I call it knitting. So they would give me parts and I would try
2: to knit it together. Um, so uh, even at the very end, paper was done, the paper was
1: in, and there were still some some leftover pieces that, you know, um, oh we shouldn't say that it makes us look bad and you know this and that and and I, I i learned that the collaboration was this agreement to move forward and a commitment to stay with the project mm-hmm. and um i'm very proud of that of, of that paper
2: for the point of view that to me it in itself is a great um, example of collaboration so um uh one is hard two uh what makes it hard is staying in the in the field uh um uh, the other is um, in our in our society and the way our workforce is, is set up.
1: First of all, most of us are trained to be competitive and not cooperative. And, and I saw this so much in academia where the individual CV and awards and stuff were much more valued
2: than being in a part of a group. So, the the third is undoing a cultural um, force toward competition. Um, now that doesn't mean that you can't be competitive. Right, certain,
1: but but at times you have to stake out, and the, I think the thing that after five years on the project, first of all, the first couple of years when I came in, I would present myself proudly as a researcher, and blah, 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 <laughs> blah,
2: blah, blah. Uh, I got such pushback from the community. About distrust
1: of researchers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: distrust of elitism, yeah, distrust of you know, uh, it, you know the uh, Tuskegee thing is I think uh, you know way too often cited, and but there are other,
2: but just this you know, and you have to pass the test. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what we are not teaching our, our clinical students about enough, is that it's not the first impression. It is that you keep your word and that you can be trusted and
1: if you know, I, I'm I'm always reminded of those those f- films where the, the you know the eight month old kid slaps mommy and looks at mommy's face and sees what mommy's going to do and whether mm-hmm. she gets retaliated against or hugged. That's how I felt.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That I had to demonstrate a willingness to listen and to. Not necessarily fall over, but uh, uh and over time become trustworthy, become seen as trustworthy, but also understand that that, that can be, that can change.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You can you can trip tripwire something and uh you know you're back, maybe not back to step one, but you you can be a few steps back.
0: You're <laughs> reminding me of, it, it, I, it, what's coming to me is that you, this idea of you keep showing up, but you yeah. keep showing up with curiosity, yeah. humility, yeah. Um, and, 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 and respect, really authenticity. Yeah. And that goes, again, is bringing me, looping me right back to you and those camp counselors and why they why they saw you as someone that they wanted to hang out with, And they knew that they could correct you and they knew they could razz you. But that's because you came not from a place of knowing, but a place of curiosity. Um,
2: It's very very
1: easy to get triggered ourselves and fall back on our privilege. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And to say, you know, who, what are you to talk to me like that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And you get written off and you get tolerated. Uh, and not supported, and, and people may not return your questionnaires. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, um, I think those are some of the things I've learned um, and lived, and lived. In this yeah. Generation. yeah.
0: So, Peter, as we close up, um, the last question I always ask for of people, and gosh, have you? had so many nuggets of it already through our conversation today but from your perspective what is resiliency?
2: Yeah I've you know I've been thinking about that uh, and I would say for me there are three aspects of it.
1: One is almost a is an individual even biological I mean there are there are babies who are able to, you know, tolerate and withstand, you know, unbelievable, terrible things and kind of seem to walk away. Mm-hmm. And
2: then there are others who are, you know, uh, much, much more vulnerable. Uh,
1: I think that what you grow up with, you know, the messages that you grew up with, the, uh, uh, the way the worldview that, that comes from you, um, and the
2: examples that you have seen of people who have faced, you know, real major problems and have maybe gotten knocked down, but have been given some return. The second. Um, is community factors. Uh, by community, I mean the family, I mean your your friends, work people,
1: like you said, relationships. Mm-hmm. And um, part of community is uh,
2: how your community makes meaning out of things and where you fit within your community in terms of the uh, agreeing with some
1: of the, the the basic tenets of feeling empowered or feeling powerless. Hmm. So
2: community, I think, is, is important. The third, which Jung predicted it, that as you get older, <laughs> you begin to,
1: to become more spiritual. And yes, I I think that um, uh, through my meditation practice, through the, the work I have been able to do with these min- ministers, the, the sense of spiritual, that
2: you have a place in the world, mm. and that... Uh, um, you um, have a sense, one, that you're not the center of the world, and second, of wonderment uh, about that. Um, and you know, I, I I do want before we close.
1: It doesn't fit exactly in here, but I do want to have a give a call out to grace and to some extent grace is connected with spirituality is not connected it happens to be connected with my spirituality and that is
2: one the sense of grace is the sense that That sense that you feel when you're
1: watching something in nature that is so big that it both makes you terribly small and hopeful at the same time. Mm. Um, That's one form of grace. The other form of grace is the ability to forgive and to... Continue to wish
2: the other well, even though they may have just stepped on your toe. Mm. That's powerful. Thank you. Which which, you know,
0: tapping into those two things does help us tap into this deeper sense of our own resilience to be able to do those other things, really.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Peter, what an inspiring uh, conversation this just was. I just really appreciate you taking the time to share your life stories and life lessons um, in such a, a humble and yet powerful way.
1: Thank you. It's, yeah. been, a, it's been an honor to, to be here with you. And, uh, you know, my, my friend who recommended that I be on the podcast talked about what a wonderful listener you are. Hmm. And I think that that she's absolutely right, that in the context of being listened to well, who you are becomes much clearer. Hmm. So thank Hmm. you.
2: Thank you, Peter. Take care and talk soon. Yes. Bye. Bye. Pathways to Resilience is brought to you by Community Solutions
0: a nonprofit organization in Santa Clara County, California. To learn more about our services and our CS Learning Training Institute, visit us at www.communitysolutions.org. Thanks for listening. And if you liked us, please feel free to subscribe or give us a review. We'd really appreciate it.
1: Yeah.